Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the honor of reading our scripture passage today, which is Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Um, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, in the Pew Bibles, um, side note, you might want to turn to page 966 and then flip one back to 965, because 965 is not a page number in the Bible, in your pew. It'll also be on the screens. <clears throat> All right, Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you have seen in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished brawn refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Thank you, Colton, for reading our text for us this morning. So this morning we're going to be in the second half of Revelation 1, as you heard read, and this is part two of our introduction to this series we call The Seven Letters to the Churches. So um, next week, we're going to be graced with the presence of a former pastor elder here at our church, Scott Dunford, who's going to be here to preach a standalone sermon for us. We're so excited to have him back. I know I'm excited to see him and have him back, and that'll be maybe the best sermon you hear all summer. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then after that, we're going to start into the first of these seven letters. But perhaps the most iconic and well-known scene from C.S. Lewis's classic children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, occurs when the children who have stumbled into the magical land of Narnia through the back of this wardrobe are sitting at dinner with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're asking questions about Aslan, this lion and Christ figure in the book. Now, some of you may have heard this before. Others of you, this might be brand new. If you've heard this before, bear with me, because I think it's just as good every time that you hear it. But this is a portion of the dialogue as the children are talking with the beavers over dinner about Aslan. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, 
the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And in this vision this morning, in Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus drawing near to his churches. In the picture of Jesus, we see in these portraits in Revelation chapter 1, they're not the cuddly pictures of Jesus we typically see in Sunday school classrooms for children. It's not Jesus lying down with this lamb beside him. This is not a domesticated Jesus being presented for us this morning. And yet we need to see Jesus this morning in all of his undomesticated majesty as he draws near to his church by his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that as we study this text this morning, that we would see Jesus and that we would find that he certainly is not safe, but that he is indeed good. So this morning, we are going to focus on Jesus in this text with a simple outline. There's three points about Jesus Christ. We're going to focus on first on Jesus's present priesthood, then Jesus's terrible beauty, and lastly, Jesus's conquering life. Jesus's present priesthood, his terrible beauty, and his conquering life. So first, let's look at his present priesthood. And this section of Revelation begins with John telling us that he's writing from the island of Patmos. Now, Patmos was a small island off of the coast of Turkey, which we, we modern day call Turkey. And it was likely an island that was used by Romans to send people that were undesirable and that were a harm to society. They had a, a, a penal uh, encampment there on Patmos where they would send prisoners to be exiled. And we begin to get the picture as we read towards the end of verse 9 that John, because of his witness to Jesus, was sent to Patmos as a punishment by the Romans. Indeed, at the beginning of verse 9, he calls himself a partner in the tribulation, the persecution and suffering which these seven churches in Asia Minor faced at the hands of the Romans. And while he is on Patmos, he's taken up in the Holy Spirit like the prophets of the Old Testament, and he hears a voice telling him to write everything that he sees and send it to these seven churches. And then in verse 12, he turns to look who is speaking to him, and the first thing he sees are seven lampstands. Now here is where the, the, the method of communication that Revelation employs that we talked about last week, speaking in symbols, begins to, to come to bear. So where do we begin in trying to understand what this, these symbols mean, beginning with these lampstands? 
Well, a helpful place to start is to jump down to the end of the chapter in verse 20, and it specifically tells us what these lampstands represent. It says that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So that's a good place to start. So these seven lampstands represent these seven churches. So the next question to ask then is, okay, then what is the significance of this imagery of the lampstands as they represent the churches? And it's here that we come to probably one of, if not the most fundamental principles that we all need to keep in mind as we try to interpret this strange book that we call Revelation. And that is that if you don't know what's going on, if you come to a passage in Revelation and everything feels obscure and strange, your first instinct, your first thought should be, this is probably something picked up from a part of the Old Testament that I'm not as familiar with as John was. That's exactly what's going on here. So in the Jewish tabernacle and temple, there sat a lampstand which provided light to the holy place. Now the tabernacle first and then the temple were the places where God's glory dwelled with his people. That lampstand, as it illuminated the inner parts of the temple with light, symbolized the light of God's presence flowing out from the center of God's people. And the priests were charged in the temple, among other things, with maintaining the light on the lampstands. They were to trim the wicks and make sure that the light continued burning. And so here in Revelation, these churches are identified as lampstands. So our minds should go back to this imagery of the temple. Now, when we use the phrase boots on the ground, we are not just talking about actual boots, right? So if we say we have boots on the ground in a certain area, we all understand that we're not just talking about the footwear that people wear, that we're actually using boots to talk about soldiers, To say there are boots on the ground is to say that we have soldiers in a given location. The part of the soldier, the boot, we use to stand in for the whole. And when John speaks of the lampstands here, he's doing the same thing. He's using a part of the temple to speak to the temple in its entirety. These seven churches and the church throughout the last days since Jesus' resurrection up till now and into the future until he comes again, all of the church of all time is the temple of God, shining the light of the presence of God out into the world. You see, what John's vision is showing us is that the church is the place in which the world sees the light of the glory of God. And notice too, Jesus stands in the midst of these lampstands, as we read in verse 13, in the midst of his church as the great high priest keeping the light of our lampstand burning. That is what chapters 2 and 3 and these seven addresses to the churches are all about. It's about Jesus, the high priest, coming to the front door of his church and making sure that the light of his presence does not go out. He is trimming the wicks. He is keeping the light going. 
The living Jesus draws near to his church both to comfort and confront them so that they might continue to display the beauty of his presence for the whole world to see. Now, that was a lot of Old Testament imagery. Let me just take a step back and ask us one question by way of of application. Is this how you view the church of Jesus Christ? Do you view the gathering of God's people as the place where the presence of Jesus, the very glory of God, is showcased to the world? Where the glory of God dwells on earth? That is not something to casually skip. That is not something to take lightly. Both our fellowship together on Sunday morning and our fellowship together throughout the week is not something to do only if we don't have any other options. Our cooperation together as the people of God to keep our light burning, to make Jesus known in Harrisburg and around this world is not a commodity that we tack on to our life. It is our life as followers of Jesus. Jesus dwells in us corporately, both this morning and as we gather as his people throughout the week. So do we treat church that way? Do we treat it as the very dwelling of God? That is how the Lord would want us to see and treat his church. Well, as John sees Jesus draw near to his church in verse 13, the question then becomes, who is this Jesus that draws near? What is he like? What is his character like? And verses 14 through 16 give us a picture of the terrible beauty of Jesus. So if you would, look with me again. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16 for us again here. It says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the the sun shining in full strength. I heard a pastor describe this image of Jesus here in verses 14 through 16 like an impressionist painting where John has taken his multicolored palette of Old Testament descriptions of either God or the coming Messiah from the Old Testament and mixed them all together into one beautiful portrait of who Jesus is. The language of this description comes from Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 1, to name a few of the places that John draws from in the Old Testament. Now, these images are not meant to show us what Jesus actually looks like. We're not to think, drawing from this, I don't think that Jesus, when you see him, will actually have a physical sword coming out of his mouth. But rather, each color in this painting is meant to show us something beautiful about the character of Jesus. It doesn't show us what Jesus looks like. It shows us what Jesus is like. 
And many of these individual descriptions of Christ that we read here, these images, will show up throughout these addresses to the churches. We'll see them pop back up again and be applied to the specific scenarios of the churches as we study on this summer. But this complete, full picture of Jesus and his beauty here in these verses is meant to show us that Jesus is the searcher of hearts, that he is full of consuming holiness and wisdom, and that he is the king and judge of the earth. It's painting a full picture of Jesus' glory and beauty. And this is all summarized for us in that last statement of verse 16, where it says that his face was shining like the sun in full strength. Or as the NIV translates it, his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. The beautiful character of Jesus shines forth from his face like the noonday summer sun. Now the sun is something that is good, but is not safe. So the sun sustains life on our planet incredibly. It causes things to grow. It affects our moods as human beings in a positive way. I know in my household, when the weather starts to get like this, we start to smile a lot more because the sun is out more. But scientists talk, too, about how our planet is perfectly positioned in the solar system with regards to our distance from the sun for life to be maintained. It's beautiful. But what that also means is that if we were a little bit closer, we would burn to a crisp in its shining brilliance. Some of us burn to a crisp simply by being outside in the sun for 30 minutes when the weather gets like this, right? The sun is beautifully radiant, but it is also dangerous. And John experienced the radiant and terrible beauty of Jesus as he received this vision. Directly after seeing the living Jesus arrayed in all of his glory, this is how John responds at the beginning of verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When Jesus draws near, there is no one, like Mrs. Beaver says, who should stand before him without their knees knocking. And as Noah Gwynn and I talked this week in the office about the sermon, he made this great point. He said, if there's anyone on earth that shouldn't feel this way about Jesus, it's John. John, who wrote Revelation, we believe, is the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, likely Jesus' closely companion, at least during his last three years of earthly life. If anyone could appear before Jesus, it would be the Apostle John, and yet he trembles and falls to the ground at the sight of Jesus in his full glory. You see, as sinful people left to ourselves, when Jesus draws near in the fullness of his beautiful character, we too should be terrified. Our sin can't stand to be in the presence of the beautiful, radiant character of God. Today, 
As you sit and listen to this passage, do not sit glibly by as the living Jesus draws near to you in his word. In our sin, we all want to tune out this image of Jesus and what it evokes in us because we know that if we were to really encounter the perfectly wise and holy judge and king, that we would, like John, fall down dead. Many of us spend our lives running away from the image of this Jesus. Our fear causes us to flee from his face. However, the good news of this passage is that we don't have to stand before God on the basis of our own sinful failings. We can stand before God on the basis of Jesus' conquering life. Look at how Jesus draws near to John after he has fallen on his face in fear. Pick up with me halfway through verse 17. It says, but he... Jesus laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This passage proclaims the good news that for those of us who look upon him in faith, in trust, Jesus draws near not to consume us, but to redeem us and to transform us in the light of his glory. As John is laying on the ground in terror, Jesus stoops down and places his right hand on his shoulder and says, do not fear. In a time of great suffering, sometimes that's all we need as people. I can think of several moments in my life, whether it was the arm of a friend around my shoulder or the arm of my wife around my shoulder in terrible suffering that brought me such comfort. And Jesus, in all of his exalted majesty and terrible beauty, stoops down to touch John on the shoulder and to lift him up as a friend. And yet the one who stoops down to lift him up comforts him with strong and mighty words. The way that Jesus comforts John and tells him not to fear is by jingling the keys of death and Hades in his face. Many of you in here own a home. And many of you have had to uh, face the trials of wading into the water of buying a house this past year and all that that has meant for you. But if you've ever bought a house before, especially in this last year, you'll know that you don't get the keys to your house when you put an offer in on that house. You don't even get the keys to the house when your offer gets accepted. You don't get the keys until closing day until you sit with a lawyer and your name is legally stamped on official documentation that you are the legal and rightful owner of this property. Friends, Jesus does not just have an offer in on death. He is not just one person bidding to be its rightful owner. He has the keys. 
He's closed on death and the grave. He owns them. He has swallowed them up in the beauty of his person and his work. You see, Jesus, the King of glory, reaches down to comfort John with the same right hand that we see in verse 16 holds the stars in place and the same hand that knocks death out with its death blow. Because Jesus is the lion who drags death down to the grave and devours it, Jesus draws near to us like a lamb to bring both confrontation and comfort for our good. He draws near not to destroy us. He draws near to save us. He does not come to his church in these seven addresses or to us today so that we might be consumed, but so that we might be transformed at the sight of his beauty. We do not have to fall down in fear of death today at the sight of God because in Jesus Christ, we see a God who in all of his terrible power and beauty is not against us, but is for all of us who trust in his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of his life. So church, the charge to us today, the charge that grounds these seven addresses to the churches that we will read of in the coming weeks is do not fear because Jesus has the keys. Rather, trust in him. Trust that his resurrection means everything about your future is sure. Because Jesus has the keys of death, and precisely because Jesus is the living Jesus, the living one, as it says in verse 18, all of our fears are swallowed up. The living Jesus can bring dead things to life. And so take heart, you have nothing to fear in this world if you are in Christ. So do not be consumed with fear of your marriage crumbling because Jesus can resurrect it. Do not be consumed with fear of having to raise the perfect children because Jesus can work with your and their mistakes. Do not fear other people and their approval of you because you have the approval of God in Jesus Christ. Do not fear looking back on the regrets of your past because Jesus is using them all for your good and for his glory. And ultimately, do not fear suffering and death because the one who holds the keys to death and the grave assures us that he will see us out on the other side and welcome us into our eternal home, which he has purchased to be with him forever. Do not fear, but by faith this morning, hear the sound of the keys of death jingling in Jesus's hands as he sits in power in the throne of the universe. I began this sermon with that scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about Aslan. But when that portion of the book gets read or quoted, oftentimes they leave out the great response of the character Peter to, this, to his hearing that Aslan is not safe, but he is good. Let me read you the rest of this dialogue, how Peter responds. Safe, said Mr. Beaver, 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is, watch this. I'm longing to see him, said Peter. Even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. You see, both a prisoner before a cruel tyrant and a bridegroom awaiting his bride tremble. They quake. Their knees knock. But they tremble for different reasons. One quakes in terror. The other quakes with delight. The gospel tells us that if you trust in Jesus' conquering life for you, you have nothing to be afraid of, not even God himself. And yet, the gospel reveals to us that as we come to faith in Jesus, we see his terrible, untamed beauty, and we do tremble, but not because we are afraid, but because we are delighted. And as we tremble before his beauty, we are changed. We are transformed, as the Apostle Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next as we behold the face of Jesus Christ. And so I pray this morning that we, as the people of Jesus, as he draws near to us, that we would behold him by faith and be changed such that we resemble the shining brilliance and terrible beauty of our Savior. And I pray that, in a sense, that that would unleash a church on this world that is not safe, but is good. Would you pray with me as I invite the band back up to lead us in a few songs? Lord Jesus, we come before your throne as people who are not afraid. We boldly draw near to your throne, as it says in the book of Hebrews, but we do so in awe and reverence and trembling at your beauty. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, that because Jesus has fell down to death, we can stand in confidence. Grow us, Lord, in that confidence. Grow us in the shining beauty of the character of Jesus as we behold your face. And Lord, continually transform us from people who are weak to people who are strong in you. We love you. It's in Jesus' powerful, strong, and conquering name we pray. Amen.